Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Startling news from Leafs icon Boreas Salming. We'll tell you about a new video from the Woman Abuse Working Group. Winning a lotto jackpot isn't all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. A world junior win for Canada in a very empty arena. Happy 50th to the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, and we bring you closer to the sound of music. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Canadian research shows that approximately one in three women will experience sexual assault in their lifetime at least once, and that women account for 92% of sexual assault victims in Canada. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Also listening on 640 Toronto, the Woman Abuse Working Group has released a new video that highlights the resources and supports available to anyone who's a victim of sexual violence. This is a serious issue. Thea Simmons is a coordinator with the Women Abuse Working Group. We have Jessica Bonilla-Dampney, a director of the Sexual Assault Center Hamilton and Area, and the incoming co-chair of the Women's uh, Abuse Working Group. Thea, Jessica, Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? Good morning. Thank you very much for having us on the show. It's great to be here um, to speak about such important matters. Theo, we'll start with you. Why did you feel the need to release this new video? Good morning. I think I, I, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, the Women Abuse Working Group recently created this um, short video about sexual assault services in Hamilton. And this system navigated video is for survivors of sexual violence, allies looking for information, and helping for professionals working with survivors and their families to help connect everyone with resources and services available in Hamilton. As we know, Hamilton's a diverse and unique community, and but sexual violence still exists and affects everyone here. Um, and there are lots of sexual assault services that offer a variety of support for individuals. So with this new video, the um, Women Abuse Working Group highlights what services are available to survivors, how to access support, and options for reporting historical and current sexual violence. Jessica, for a person who's been the victim of sexual violence, making that first call is a big step in seeking help. Do you think this video is going to lead to more women calling you for help? Uh, Absolutely. So it's important for for survivors to know what resources are available for them in the city of Hamilton um, and surrounding areas. And so to have this bit of, of, sorry, to have this video available um, allows survivors to um, see the services beforehand. This video also allows survivors to see what what social service agencies look like on the inside and who the individuals who are, are providing these services are. So it allows them um, a little bit more choice um, to say, oh, this service looks like it's good for me. I feel a little com- more comfortable speaking to this person. And you can also see the diversity within the services. Um, so first and foremost, uh, for all survivors, it's important for them to know that they are believed. So we're hoping that with these, uh, with this video, individuals are able to see that these agencies are ready um, to support them when they're ready to seek help for, for themselves. You hit a key phrase there, victims um, know that they're believed. Um, more often than not, do they think, and I'm trying to get in the head of these, of these sexual assault victims, they think that, you know, no one's going to believe me, they're not going to help me, I'm just going to stay where I am. So we know uh, that rape myths are often uh, used uh, and are predominant in our society. So at the Sexual Assault Center, at the Women Abuse Working Group, and all the other so- social service agencies that belong to, to WAG, um, what we want survivors to know is that they are believed. We want survivors to know that they are not alone. 
um, and that uh, rape culture is something that we're combating against um, through the work that we do, that we're advocating for a society, um, a Hamilton that is uh, based on consent, that is a, a safer society where, where survivors can come to social service agencies and know that they're not alone and, and will be believed. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and 640 Toronto is Thea Simmons and Jessica Benia-Dampney from the Women Abuse Working Group. They've released a new video that highlights the resources and supports available to those who are victims of sexual violence. Thea, I was shocked to hear that only 6% of sexually violent acts are reported. That is extremely low. Yes, it's very low. And um, we also know that uh, there are so many people, women included, that um, experience sexual assault in their lifetime at least once. Um, it, some of the stats are one in three, one in four women. Um, and so this sexual assault um, services video really um, is for everyone to know that they, there are supports out there for them, whether they're um, ready to or wanting to um, report um, to, to any kind of service, really, it's available to them. Jessica, for women who have not taken that leap to reach out and seek some help, what should they know? So for survivors of any gender who um, haven't reached out, um, they should know that services are available for them when they are ready. Um, nobody is, is is telling you what you should or what you shouldn't do. Um, so what this what this video is doing is letting you know what your options are. Um, so for all survivors who are listening right now or for anybody supporting a survivor, please know you're not alone. Please know that the Women Abuse Working Group is here um, to support you and support your, your loved one or the person that you know who is... Um, a survivor of sexual assault um, and that you can come to us when when you're ready for support for yourself and when the, the person that you know who's a survivor is ready for support as well. Um, but first and foremost, I want everybody to know that uh, it's important to take the survivor's lead um, because although um, for those of us um, who may not be survivors here that uh, sexual assault cases are very underreported, 6% or less, it's important to take the cue from that survivor and not force them to do anything they don't want to do. Um, and an individual will choose for themselves what's right or what's wrong. We have a couple of minutes here. Let's talk about some success stories. Let's talk about those women that you have helped who are now survivors or, and are in a better place. Absolutely. So um, individuals of any gender who are survivors now, um, I, I would say uh, we see them uh, through the Women Abuse Working Group. Uh, we have a an amazing group of individuals who are part of the survivors uh, working group at waves um, and they are out in community sharing their stories out in community um, sharing the resources that are available out in community um, supporting other survivors uh, what what this group does and what other groups do um, through the women abuse working group in our organizations is when a survivor um, has reported and th these reports have gone to court and there is a court hearing um, uh, in person um, or via Zoom, survivors show up if the family has requested um, to show support for that individual, which is really important. Um, so we see um, our community showing up for one another. We see our community building these cultures of consent, and we, we see our community showing survivors that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. And one of the quotes from the, the WAVE survivor is that WAG has given me the opportunity to have a voice in my community regarding gender-based violence. I find my strength in asserting my voice, even when it sometimes feels like we are sliding backwards and recognizing oppression. WAG gives me hope that part of my city cares. This is a quote from one of the survivors of the WAVE's group.
That is great to hear. Thea, Jessica, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us, and best of luck in helping more individuals in our community. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. That's Thea Simmons and Jessica Benia-Dampney from the Woman Abuse Working Group. You can check out the video online at wawg.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Toronto Maple Leafs icon Borea Salming scoring goals, racking up points all those years to go, but provided us with some shocking news yesterday. He's revealed that he has been diagnosed with ALS. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and welcome all our friends listening in on 640 Toronto. It's a discussion we rarely have, these these serious illnesses that cripple the body and impact friends and family uh, not only in this country, but around the world. And Borea is just the latest person to be afflicted with Lou Gehrig's disease. Dr. David Taylor is our guest to chat about this. He's the Vice President of Research and Strategic Partnerships at the ALS Society of Canada. Dr. Taylor, good morning. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good. I- I'm good, yeah. Thanks for coming on to talk about uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, more commonly known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, let's start with the basics. How does it affect the body? Yeah, so our body has living wires called motor neurons that connect our brain to our muscles, and these essentially degenerate, so you end up not being able to tell your muscles to move, so you lack the ability eventually to move, breathe, swallow, and um, uh, speak. Uh, and the breathing part is what makes it, an, unfortunately, a terminal disease. I read once years ago, and I'm not sure this is still the case, but the more you move around, the more you are active, the the worse it gets. Is that is that still hold true? Uh, for ALS, well, it's it's a little more complicated in in the sense that uh, maybe moderate exercise is okay, but. Uh, we're still sort of inconclusive on what to do, but very, very extreme exercise when someone has ALS can can, can be uh, uh, something that may make it worse. It's not really advised. Borea has just been diagnosed. Many others in this country will be as well each and every year. What challenges lie ahead for someone who hears that they have ALS? Well, uh the disease progresses usually on average around two to five years. Uh, it is a terminal disease, um, and it, it's a devastating disease. But uh, these people should know also that they're not alone. Uh, or organizations like ALS Canada uh, are able to provide direct supports. Uh, we fund the best research in Canada and how it plugs in around the world, and we advocate on, on their behalf and, and certainly can provide the supports and care that they need. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and 640 Toronto is Dr. David Taylor, VP of Research and Strategic Partnerships at the ALS Society of Canada. Are there any warning signs or symptoms? Uh, So not far in advance. We still don't know exactly who's susceptible except for a small percentage of people who have it really uh, embedded in their family line. Uh, but early symptoms are often weakness uh, uh, and, and, and various other ones that can be really difficult to diagnose, which is why we're working very hard to try to find pathways for earlier diagnosis so that people can get onto standard of care treatments as quick as possible. What is the prevalence of ALS in Canada? Uh, there are about 3,000 people living at any time, but that is sort of underrepresentative of the impact that it has because... There are two to three people diagnosed per day in Canada, and two to three people sadly pass away. So the number remains kind of uh, stagnant at around 3,000 people or so. Is there a general timeline in in when people um, succumb to ALS? 
typically two to five years after diagnosis, but it's very what we call heterogeneous. So some people, unfortunately, will progress very rapidly and can pass away within months to, uh, to a year, and then others uh, may live uh, past the five-year point. And that's the difficulty with this disease, and you will know being a part of the research part of it, is there's so many unanswered questions to ALS. Yeah, and, and, and it is very complex. We've come a very long way, but we still have a ways to go. And, and, and the major reason for this is it is working with a fraction of a fraction of the funding of most treatable diseases. And, and it's just so criminally underfunded that, uh, that we haven't been able to get as far as we would like. That's a good point. More, more research is needed. We know that research costs money. How can people, how can our listeners um, help out? Yeah, so we fund the best uh, uh, research in Canada for ALS as well as globally how Canada fits into the, the better understanding and treatment of the disease. www.als.ca is a great place to start as well as 1-800-267-4257 if anyone needs support. Um, and certainly donating to ALS research, every dollar matters, and we will do the best we can to absolutely put it towards impact. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and 640 Toronto, Dr. David Taylor, the VP of Research and Strategic Partnerships with the ALS Society of Canada, uh, talking about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease, as Toronto Maple Leafs icon Boreas Salming shared the news that he has been diagnosed with it. Let's talk about that research and, and treatments. What is happening right now? Are we on the cusp of maybe making a possible breakthrough in the next few years? So I think it's probably a little more incremental. We can always have a breakthrough at any given time. There are now three therapies that are approved in Canada for ALS. They can have a, a, a modest effect at slowing the progression of the disease. But I think the big piece is that maybe five, ten years ago, there were a handful of companies that were running clinical trials for experimental therapeutics. And now we have hundreds of companies, and that's a testament to how much we have learned in the past several years. And what are the current treatments like? Is it just popping pills or is it more of that? Uh, so in the case of uh, 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 what we have now, two of them are actually sort of a pill or a tablet. One of them is an intravenous uh, medication, uh, but there is an oral one on the way for that. Uh, but more invasive therapies uh, that may involve uh, certain types of procedures are certainly being worked on and that have some, some considerable promise, at least for some, some people with ALS. I guess the hope is, as sad as it is that, you know, a high-profile individual like Borea Salming, an iconic hockey player, has been diagnosed with this disease, but it, it will, sh- obviously with this interview and many more, I'm sure, happening across this country and around the world, is going to shine a light on this disease and perhaps uh, you guys will get a little more attention and that criminally underfunded portion of that research dollar will hopefully come. I certainly hope so. I grew up idolizing uh, uh, Boris Selming. Uh, I remember the skate cutting the face very, very well as yes. a young child. And uh, um, he's a testament to toughness and uh, means a lot to the city of Toronto as well as the hockey world in general. And uh, hopefully this will bring better awareness to ALS because it certainly needs it. And uh, we will do everything we can to make sure we get there as fast as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Taylor, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. That's Dr. David Taylor, Vice President, Research and Strategic Partnerships at the ALS Society of Canada. A tough break for Boreas Salming. He's 71. Our, our thoughts and prayers are with him. And let's hope he can live out the rest of his days as comfortably as possible. But it is going to be, as he said, a big challenge. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Lotto Max jackpot is what, 10, 10 million bucks? 649, 5 million, I think I saw yesterday. Ontario 49, if, if anyone out there does play Ontario 49, it's $2 million. Either way, 2, 5, 10, more? 
That's a nice chunk of change. How many times have you dream, dreamt of winning the lottery, retiring, living the good life? I'm sure many of you have heard this. Winner, Ganyo. That, that's good. You're not going to retire after hearing that. You might, however, do so after hearing this. You're a winner. No, that's not the final stage of Super Mario Brothers. That is the big-time $10,000-plus jackpot signal, if you will, at an OLG counter. Have you ever heard that? Whether it's you or someone else at the counter? Man, if I heard that after putting my ticket in, I'm not sure what I'd do. But a lot of winners, and we've seen them from time to time, whether it's $10 million or $70 million or down in the States, hundreds of millions of dollars. Heck, the all-time record is over a billion. Can't imagine winning that amount of money. It is, I'm sure, exciting, life-changing, but not always for the better. You may think it's all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, but no. It's not in some cases. There is a dark side to hitting the jackpot. And many people have faced this other side of the coin, if you will. Pardon the pun. Don Fox is an executive financial consultant at IG Private Wealth Management and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Don, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. First thing a jackpot winner should do, I guess, would be to call you at IG Private Wealth Management. But after that, what should they do? Uh, Yeah, they definitely need to get their affairs in order. It's, you know, any kind of windfall, whether it's a jackpot uh, you know, an inheritance, any type of windfall, or even for that matter, you know, selling a, a, a cottage or a farm or, or a business. And, and it is life changing because, you know, quite often people have a certain lifestyle they're used to. In fact, everybody has a certain lifestyle and they live w- within their means, hopefully. And all of a sudden you've got this million dollars, 500,000. Do we still have Don? Has Don just won the jackpot? I think Don's just maybe frozen. Don, if you can hear us, we're here. (laughs) We'll just wait for you to rejoin. Uh, Don Fox, executive financial consultant at IG Private Wealth Management. He may be stuck in cyberspace. (laughs) It can be be daunting. We have you back. Thanks, Don. We we lost you there for a little bit. Uh, You were just sorry. No, that's okay. Hey, we're going to blame technology. Um, You were just explaining on how, yeah, daunting it can be for people who strike it rich all of a sudden because they're not used to handling all this cash. Yeah, it's it's a daunting amount of money. And it can, it's life changing, and they're not used to dealing with this type of windfall. And even, and even more so, in a lottery situation, quite often, everybody seems to know about it. It's often published, and therefore, you know, all of a sudden letters come in your mailbox and requests, and all, and you make all of a sudden a lot of, a lot of new friends that all of a sudden uh, <laughs> want to be by your side. So yeah, it's a, it's a different beast, lottery winners for sure. And I know um, we've dealt with these in the past, and uh, as I. As you may have not heard or heard, I might have cut off, but Hamilton had a, a fairly a, a recent large winner mm-hmm. somewhere in the last six to eight months. And uh, I know they've gone through a lot of this same process. What are the most common mistakes? Because as you mentioned, you know, you get letters in the mail, long lost family members are calling you all of a sudden. What are, is it, is the big mistake just not saying no? Uh, that would probably be the one of the largest mistakes. You know, taking these letters at face value and 
assume they're legitimate. Quite often they're not. And I always wonder what would happen if that person didn't win the lottery, how would these people survive? You know, you know, these all of a sudden they, a child needs an operation or what have you. So quite often there is some people preying on lottery winners. So you got to be careful of that. But uh, I would suggest the biggest mistake is not getting, is changing your life dramatically. And, and when I say that, I, I don't mean necessarily, yes, you can buy a new car and a new house, but your lifestyle and your friends and just the way you act for that matter. And, it, you know, that's why quite often a lot of these windfalls, people winning a lottery or an inheritance, quite often within five years, they've gone through a lot of their money and sometimes all their money. That's pretty scary. Don Fox is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML in 640 Toronto. Don is an executive financial consultant at IG Private Wealth Management. When someone does hit that jackpot and they are contacting you and saying, hey, you know, what do I do? Is diversification still the key to that end game of, of keeping most, if not all of that, all of that windfall? Yeah, diversification is extremely important. And, you know, right now, what one part is... Uh, you know, uh, an income for life, for example, annuities aren't talked about a whole lot because they're they're not sexy. They give you an income. They're like they're like a pension fund, and you know, it's the one thing I like about an annuity is they will give you a set income <clears throat> and no risk. You you have this no matter what. So if everything else messes up, you will therefore you'll still get your check in the mail every month or into your bank account, and that's a nice thing to have that base. No different than if you work for a company. And, and you got a, a guaranteed pension for life. So that's the nice part. But, you know, the return might not be in that, that great. But at the end of the day, it's, it's trying to balance return and performance against safety. And also, yeah, your own temptations. And you got to understand, you know, human nature is just generally not to make money. Like human nature is often we get tempted to do a lot of things that could jeopardize your long-term plan. Yeah, we like to spend it and not save it, that is for sure. Don, really appreciate the time today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, and hey, good luck the next time you play the lottery as well. Well, thank you, and uh, you know, a shout out to the Ticats tomorrow. I hope they continue. I obviously follow you there, Rick, on your, on your Twitter, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll hope for a big, a nice, a better outcome tomorrow night against the Argos. Yeah, let's hope they hit the jackpot too. Don, thanks for the time. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. That is Don Fox, Executive Financial Consultant at IG Private Wealth Management. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it was one of those performances last night for Team Canada that we all expected. 19 or 17-year-old phenom Connor Bedard had a goal and an assist to lead the Canadians to an opening victory in the World Junior Hockey Championship in Edmonton. 5-2 over Latvia last night. Here to talk about it is Stephen Ellis. He's a web editor with the Hockey News. Stephen, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Thanks again for waking up super early with us as you're out in Edmonton enjoying the tournament. Let's get to the off-ice stuff before we get to the on-ice stuff. We know there's been a cloud of controversy that's hovered over this year's championship. Is that being felt as the games are ongoing? Absolutely. And you can definitely look in the crowd and you can see kind of that it uh, people are kind of reacting that way when with everything kind of going on in Hockey Canada, it's been tough to kind of, for, for a lot of people to get really excited about this tournament because it's like a lot of people want to support the players, but in doing so, you are supporting Hockey Canada in a way which when a lot of people want there to be turnover, to their change at the leadership there, um, and, and for them to actually kind of make real steps towards 
improving hockey culture. So uh, we we knew obviously that stuff was not going to be immediate. It was going to be a process. But I think kind of just a perfect storm of terrible timing. Like the Hockey Canada just hosted the Lincoln Gretzky too, uh, the the U eighteen tournament. Now they got the World Juniors back to back in the same province, and that's just tough timing for all this. But uh, it's definitely something that you know people are talking about in the city and. Social media, you could tell it's still a pretty dominant topic. A lot of empty sections in Rogers Place last night for Canada's 5-2 win over Latvia. The attendance, uh, I'm not sure if it was announced in the arena, but super low and nothing like we've ever seen, at least in recent years, when Canada is playing at this tournament. I guess, you know, having it in August as well doesn't really help either. For sure. I, I believe I saw the number just over 2,000 people, which obviously not not great. And they, they're all using the lower bowl, which I believe is just under 10,000 seats. And uh, I posted a picture of the, the Germany-Austria game later that night. And we know that typically that would not be a huge draw, but there was 12 people in the crowd when the warm-ups began. And wow. I think there had to have been maybe 100, 150 max near the end. And uh, part of the issue is when these tickets are $40, at the bare minimum, that's that's a tough sell. There's no like really terrible seats because it is just a lower bowl, so you're you're basically getting everything the same. But it, it's been tough, kind of just seeing just these empty crowds. And the players say like they don't care; they're still out there trying to do it. They still care; it still matters to them. But it, I think deep down, they're looking at like an empty crowd in, in one of the biggest moments of their lives. That must think of it. Yeah, it's almost like they're in a bubble, but uh, in fact they're not. We're talking about the World Junior Hockey Championship, which has kicked off in Edmonton, Canada beating Latvia last night 5-2. And our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Stephen Ellis, web editor with the Hockey News. Let's talk about what happened on the ice. What stood out to you? Well, I, I know a lot of people will say, like, oh, Canada didn't go out there and uh, dominate Latvia in terms of the score. It was only 5-2, but I think that was a Latvian team that was just so determined to do whatever it takes. and. You know, when we look at the World Juniors, Canada, that was the third time playing Latvia ever. And both times before that, 16 nothing and 10 2. So they were big dominant games. But I think in this case, uh, you know, you, you got to chalk it up that uh, Berezin's the goalie for Latvia, kind of just played one of the best games you could have asked for in a situation like that. And yeah, Latvia just came off of uh, off just playing the day before. But it seemed like they kind of just gave it everything, knowing that this was. Yeah, a good opportunity to show what they could do. And uh, they actually had more shots than Canada in the third. But I think overall, Canada definitely dominated the play statistically. So I'm happy there. Uh, was it a perfect game by Canada? No, not, not at all. But uh, I know I, I'm not concerned with Canada's performance after that. I think I got to see Canada play Sweden in the, in the tournament game uh, a couple nights ago. And I thought that was a better performance. And I think that was a bit more indicative of what they could do. So uh, I still think I like what Canada's. But capable of here, but uh, maybe not the best performance against a team they probably should have scored a few more goals on. They'll have a a little bit of a stiffer test tonight with Slovakia. What can you tell about them? Well, this is a Slovakian team that you know they're. I think a lot of people kind of expected not some great things because they are missing pretty much all their their top talent. But they went out there and they gave Chechia a run for the money. They they took a lead against them. They they forced Chechia to play a very competitive game and uh so they're not going to back down here i do expect canada to still come out here um slovakia is a team that is going to be trying to fight for every single point they could possibly get in in this group because uh, again they don't have uh yuri Slavkovsky, they don't have simon nemich but they're still a team with some good speed and they're going to battle you to the very end steven appreciate the time enjoy the rest of the tournament 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. That is Stephen Ellis, web editor with the Hockey News, reflecting on last night's 5-2 win by Canada over Latvia. The Canadians in action tonight at 6 Eastern time against Slovakia. They also have in their division Czechia or the Czech Republic, as well as Finland. The other group, Group B, has the U.S., Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Russia, not in this year's tournament because of their invasion of Ukraine. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Our Good Morning Hamilton summer cruising series continues this week, and today's focus is the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, believe it or not. Dave Rohr is the president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dave, how are you? Good morning, Rick. Nice to be with you. 50 years. Where has the time gone? Oh, my goodness, yes. You know, 1972, four fellows got together and decided they wanted to buy a, a, a basically a World War II uh, fighter-era airplane. It started with one, fair, uh, it was called a Ferry Firefly, which was a fighter reconnaissance airplane, and that led to today what is Canada's largest flying museum, and it's uh, right here in the hammer. Did those fellas have a connection with the war, or were they just aviation fanatics? Uh, well, no, actually they did. You know, uh, one of the members, of course, Dennis Bradley was the uh, main founder, and uh, he had an interest in it. But one of the members who was a very key member of the four was a gentleman named John Weir. And John Weir had been a Spitfire pilot, Canadian, young Canadian Spitfire pilot in the Royal Air Force, and ended up shot down and ended up in uh, Stalag Luft Three, which was the Great Escape. And he was tunneled in that, uh, in that uh, prison camp. He didn't escape because he had injuries to his eyes and he was, a, he was worried about trying to escape. But he actually, as a young lad, had worked in the mines in Timmins because his father wanted him to understand the value of a dollar. And it came from a well-to-do family in Toronto. And so when he got there, uh, they were tunneling and they were having trouble with the tunnels collapsing. And because of his experience as a young lad in the mines of Timmins, he knew how to shore the tunnels up, and he tunneled. So he certainly did have an experience in the war. That's just one of so many amazing stories connected with the museum. It's just steeped in history. It, it really is. And, you know, over the 50 years, there have been so many veterans and so many members of the, of the Air Force and uh, Allied Air Forces who have helped us along the way. And then there have been so many people from... Uh, just interested and committed Canadians and members of the museum, members of our own community here who have supported us. You know, we have about 2,400 members, and uh, and of those, uh, some of those spend about two or three days a week with us, and we call those volunteers. And without that commitment over the over the years, we would never be where we are today as Canada's largest flying museum. It's all because of uh, that commitment, that dedication of our members. How does someone become a member, and what are some of the perks? Well, really, all you have to do is come to the museum and see our uh, our volunteer services coordinator, and uh, you can become a member. Uh, membership fee is $145 a year for a sustaining member, and that would include your significant other. And uh, then you can go from there and buy different levels of memberships and become involved. We accept volunteers in all areas of our operation, whether it's uh, aircraft engineering or whether it's in our archives or or perhaps in our, our tour guides or uh, 
in our building maintenance or ramp crews. And people, you know, we have so many talented people. We have retired surgeons. We, we have retired master electricians and machinists and lawyers who, in the retirement, come and, and contribute. So it's really amazing. That is great to hear. We are talking about the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, part of this week's focus of our Good Morning Hamilton Summer Cruising Series. And we're joined by Dave Rohr, the President and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. You have an exciting event this weekend, Air Force Day. What's going on? Well, Air Force Day, we started this about 10 years ago, and what we wanted to do was to give the Air Force an opportunity to come uh, to Hamilton uh, come to the museum with their equipment, with their uh, with their aircraft, meet the public, and tell the public they have a chance to to spend time with the public, show them the aircraft, talk about their roles and responsibilities to our country, and and uh, just share what a great asset they are to our own security and safety in our country. And we started about ten years ago, and it really became successful. And uh, the Air Force certainly enjoyed it because it was a chance to to spend time with the public and tell the public what they do on a daily basis and also what career opportunities are available in in the Royal Canadian Air Force. So that's what we're doing this weekend on Saturday, and we've got a number of assets coming in from uh, 8 Wing and Trenton, which is the largest Air Force base in Canada. So we'll have a Globemaster, which is the largest cargo airplane uh, that supports all kinds of things like fires in Newfoundland or British Columbia or whatever, you know, uh, or taking people out of Afghanistan. They operate worldwide. Uh, we'll have the uh, search and rescue helicopters from 424 Squadron based in Trenton that do all your search and rescue on the Great Lakes and, and up north. Uh, we'll have uh, helicopters. Uh, we have big Chinook helicopter out of Petawawa, uh, 450 Squadron, which does heavy transport, uh, heavy helicopters. And then we'll also have uh, also airplanes going back even to the British Commonwealth Air Training Program so we'll talk about the whole history of the Royal Canadian Air Force, which was started in 1924. That is awesome. And Dave, i got to jump in here because we're short on time, but I also want to mention the 50 Years Gala at the Warplane Heritage Museum goes October 15th, and you can get your tickets at warplane.com. Dave, we're plumb out of time. I'd love to go another 40 minutes with you, but we can't. Thanks for the time, and good luck this weekend. Thank you. Have a great day, Rick. You too. That's Dave Rohr, President and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The incomparable Julie Andrews and The Sound of Music, an iconic movie and... Well, an iconic presentation that is going to be coming up one week from today at Hamilton's first Ontario Concert Hall. It's all part of the Brat Music Festival. And here to talk about it is the director of the Sound of Music, Lou Zampronia. Lou, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How good are morning, you? Rick. Rick, you just scared the hell out of me by talking to me about it being one week from today. <laughs> I can't believe, oh, my gosh. Uh, just don't do that to me. What, what, <laughs> need, what still needs to be done, Lou? Oh, well, we, you know, we've been working for a week and a half, two weeks, maybe. And uh, when you're doing a show with 37 people, seven of which are children, um, it takes a lot of rehearsal. A lot of people were rushing through it. So we have to go over and over again. And uh, we're, we're, there's little things to do, tightening up to do. I mean, we're talking about one of the most loved musicals of all time, right? Uh, one of the most poignant love stories of all time. And it's it's a true story about, you know, about a, a somewhat taboo love story between a uh, member of the cloth and a layman with seven children, uh, a love story that has to surround one of the most turbulent times in history, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. And then they top it all off, they have to climb a mountain, uh, 
all the time singing some of the most beautiful, memorable songs of musical theater, like like The Sound of Music and Do Re Mi, which you just played, and 16 Going on 17, and of course, the Climb Every Mountain. I mean, who could ask for anything more? <laughs> so are you saying there's a little bit of pressure in trying to nail it? Well, it, yes, it is, of course, because it's the most lovable musical of all time. People are expecting things that, that well, they just got to expect. They got they watch the movie over and over again, as we all know. Every year it's on television constantly, and people expect to see that musical. And, of course, the movie is a little bit different than the stage show because they can do so much in the movie to, you know, get a camera to roam around mountains and all that kind of thing. But, uh We've got a pretty good show on our hands, and I think uh, people are going to be really excited about it. What's the process like in terms of rehearsals and and just trying to get that finished product that you can all be proud of? Well, I mean, I think my process is to put as much on the boards as possible, get everybody in, uh, show them what I'm expecting of them, have them go away and come back uh, knowing a little, knowing most of it, and then doing it again and sending them away and doing it again until the process is refined and refined until it's ready for the audience to sit there who will, and enjoy a show, enjoy an evening of listening to songs that they've treasured for years. Brought Music Festival presents The Sound of Music August 18th at Hamilton's First Ontario Concert Hall. You can get your tickets now at broughtmusic.com. We're in discussion with Lou Zampronia, the director of The Sound of Music at the Brought Music Festival. What's your favorite part of this production? Actually, a couple of things in my in my mind of this production is, of course, is working with kids. I love seeing little kids doing things that everybody goes, ah, oh, ooh, and, and excited about it. But there are a couple numbers in the show that uh, are not as popular as the ones that we've just mentioned. You've mentioned, I've mentioned, but uh, they're such great numbers. They're true musical comedy numbers played by uh, Elsa, who's the fiancé of Captain Von Trapp, and Max, the Wheeler Dealer, and the Captain. And they're great, entertaining numbers. So for me, that's really a highlight. And I love the fact that in 16, going on 17, we've got uh, two amazing singers and two amazing dancers. So I'm having the opportunity to really make this into uh, a, a true entertaining number for everybody i would imagine when a filmmaker is trying to make a movie based off a book they can't put everything in the book on film when you're trying to make a musical from an iconic movie is it the same kind of mindset you can't you can't throw everything on stage well i mean the the point is that i i the musical the stage musical came before the movie so i'm I'm in love with that, the stage musical. The movie gets a little bit elaborate, which they can do because they're going to be entertaining millions of people. And uh, they have more facility with camera work and airplanes flying around and taking shots of people standing on top of the mountain singing, no, heroes are alive. (laughs) So uh, they have an opportunity, which I don't, but nothing beats live theater actual actors up there singing the songs for you walking from stage right to stage left going up and down staircases lights coming on and off Uh, that to me is the exciting thing yeah you really feel it you get the emotion of the people on stage delivering you know those high notes those low notes and everything in between and that's right and it's uh you know it's real live theater something could go wrong (laughs) and you're not supposed to know as an audience that it's gone wrong, but uh, and they're trained to fix it as we go along.
Lou, this sounds like it's going to be a fantastic production of The Sound of Music. August 18th, Hamilton's first Ontario Concert Hall. Again, you can get your tickets at broughtmusic.com. Lou, thanks for the time. All the best with this. And thank you very much, Rick, and uh, come and enjoy the show. You got it. Lou Sampronia, director of The Sound of Music. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.